Hi, and welcome back to Voices. This is episode 18, and this is Occupy Silkway. I've uh, got a really special guest, and we're really looking to cover a lot of territory like usual. Could you please introduce yourself? Uh, hello, my name is uh, Dilana Gaitanjeva. I come from Bulgaria. Uh, I'm an investigative uh, journalist, and I broke the story uh, about Silkway Airlines and its diplomatic flights uh, with weapons um, destined for terrorists around the world. This is short, my basic card. We'll have a link to how I was first introduced to you. You uh, had a Twitter go out, and it said, I've just got fired for telling the truth about weapon supplies for terrorists in Syria on diplomatic flights. Uh, that's a, please tell us more. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty good lead, by the way. Um, it, it was surprising for me that this tweet uh, got so much uh, international attention. I didn't expect that. Um, I expected my investigation to attract this international attention, not my firing, not my interrogation. But I will start with the beginning of the story because maybe not all of your listeners uh, are well informed about uh, the situation in the Middle East, uh, in December of last year, I was covering the war uh, in and the battle of Aleppo when the jihadists uh, from al-Nusra Front, uh, an al-Qaeda affiliate uh, designated as a terrorist organization by the United Nations, retreated from their positions. I got inside nine underground warehouses of heavy weapons with Bulgaria as their country of origin. When I got back to my home country, Bulgaria, I traced back uh, these um, rockets and it turned out that they are just a small portion of a bigger international scheme involving um, a number of countries from all, all over the world. Um, um, especially the United States, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, many European countries, and um, Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan uh, and uh, its state-run uh, company, Silkway Airlines, uh, provided this service, diplomatic flight for weapons, to private um, American uh, companies, uh, working under a secret CIA program uh, for non-U.S. standard weapons, uh, which were uh, on papers, which were sent to the U.S. Special Operations Command. Um, and um, I, uh, I said documents or papers. I received uh, secret memos by an anonymous Twitter account two months ago which were correspondence between the Bulgarian Ministry of Foreign Affairs and uh, the Azeri Embassy to Bulgaria with uh, diplomatic notes for flights with heavy weapons. Uh, so uh, I, I uh, checked the authenticity of these documents and I reached out to the Azerbaijani Embassy in Sofia. They confirmed the authenticity of these documents and um, uh, also confirmed uh, they had been subjected to a cyber attack. I did um, a further research and um, checked uh, all the companies who had chartered these diplomatic flights, and it turned out that these American companies uh, had worked on um, a special program uh, and uh, had been uh, commissioned by the U.S. government and CIA to supply non-U.S. standard weapons to Syrian rebels. And uh, this is not only about Syria. There are many diplomatic flights to different war zones uh, around the world, according to these uh, documents. Um, there are um, weapon supplies to Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, uh, Yemen, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Southern Africa, in particular Congo and um, other um, areas 
uh, ravaged by a war. So we are talking about a huge international weapons supply uh, network, which uh, which is uh, striking for me. You can't imagine uh, the gravity of uh, this scheme. I was when I first um, received these documents. It took me maybe half an hour to realize uh, what a huge criminal scheme this this was. And uh, my country, Bulgaria, was uh, uh, well involved in this criminal scheme. Uh, actually, not only Bulgaria, many Balkan states, uh, Romania, Serbia, Croatia, Slovakia, all of them provided weapons manufactured in these countries uh, to uh, U.S. companies, uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, the United Arab Emirates on diplomatic flights to supply militants around the world. This is the scheme in short uh, that I came across. So I published um, my investigation um, and... Um, the Azuri embassy to Bulgaria urged uh, the Bulgarian authorities to investigate uh, my case. Uh, the Bulgarian authorities did investigate the case, but they um, they didn't investigate uh, the criminal scheme and this um, uh, weapon supplies. They they tried to find out my sources, and uh, I was interrogated. And a few hours later, I. My contract with the newspaper where I used to work was suspended. Uh, can you uh, – I, I, let me uh, – there's going to be people who tend to see that this came from Anonymous, the, the set of documents, and they're going to try and discredit it by saying, well, that's Anonymous and we can't, we can't trust that. And it, because you're a reporter and you have been a reporter for 15 years, you, of course, didn't just take it on – as gospel that here's an, something that came in from somebody you have no idea who they were and run with the story. I mean, can you kind of give an idea what a reporter does to check authenticity or yes. a real reporter does? Uh, yeah. When it comes, uh, when it comes to such a huge story, yes. It's, yes, it's obvious that the source of this information will be anonymous. I try to get in touch with this, source or the people behind this anonymous account and uh, of course they didn't want to respond any further. I know the, uh, why they uh, chose me to provide this information because I, I uh, made a series of investigations uh, in, and articles that I published and reports on the weapon supplies from Bulgaria to Syria. And I filmed on the ground, nine underground warehouses for Bulgarian weapons. And later on, I traced back these weapons to their manufacturer and export in Bulgaria. So I, I know why... I know that why they chose me to to give me this information, but uh, when I got the documents, uh, I uh, I inspected carefully the content of the documents and uh, did uh, thorough research and uh, the confirmation of the Azuri Embassy that actually yes, these documents were obtained after a cyber attack. And uh, yes, there are diplomatic fights, but this is not illegal. This was, uh, in short, their answer. This was uh, the confirmation from the other side that um, the information inside the documents was genuine. And um, I also checked uh, the, the American companies and other Bulgarian companies, uh, many European companies, uh, who, uh, which exported uh, those weapons, and um, it turned out that they are very much involved in the international arms, uh, in international arms deals. Many of them had uh, uh, very lucrative contracts with, uh, in this case, uh, the American government. Uh, others uh, had contracts, uh, well, subcontracts to the American. Uh, 
company. So it turned out to be absolutely true. Uh, I mean, first you should do and you should bear in mind that somebody may try to mislead you. But uh, when you do your job as an investigative journalist, you know what is true and what is not. Also, you should know what is right and what is wrong. What is wrong is to put your sources in danger because people behind this anonymous account, they they risk their life for what they did. I don't know who they are and I'm very thankful to them and these are very brave people because uh, the information they sent to me uh, can save the life of hundreds of thousands of people uh, if the weapon supplies stopped the wars in different areas around the world would also stop because without weapons these militants can't fight and this is my appeal to all, all the people around the world to press all together our governments to stop the weapon supplies because I checked um, Yesterday, on um, a flight um, tracking website, which is public in the public domain, this information is, is in the public domain, the diplomatic flights continue, mm. and they have never stopped. Uh, this time, uh, the weapons uh, supplies uh, were from Israel, Germany, and Slovakia. I'm talking about the recent uh, flights that I, I checked the last few days. It, uh, the... Your story also has is a remarkable echo of the story that we've also touched on with earlier episodes here with Serena Shim. Yes. Uh, were you there at the same time she was? Did you ever get to meet her? No, actually, I I didn't know her in person, but I followed her story when when she she got killed in this horrendous and shocking way such a beautiful and brave woman and her life was um, lost for for the truth this is the reality she was the first journalist to break uh, the story about um, how uh, weapons um, had been uh, um, transferred to uh, to Syria on uh, tracks with humanitarian aid right um, there were pictures of, of NGO trucks uh, with uh, connected to UN, as I remember. I'm, I'm doing that from memory. I don't. I'll try yes. and get a link up for what the specific was. Um, but again, it was well documented. Uh, some of that documentation is is hard to find, um, but it's there. And again, this is not the first time we've heard this story uh, that that supplies are going out. Can you real? This will probably seem like a stupid question, uh, and we've we've only got about two minutes, uh, seven minutes left in this section. Uh, but can you kind of touch on why it's <laughs> why it's a bad thing for embassies to be involved uh, with with this sort of activity? Uh, mm-hmm. That was the shocking part of the story yeah. to me that that there mm-hmm. were diplomatic people involved. Uh, diplomatic cover uh, means that, that these flights are uh, not subject to checks, inspections, and air bills. This also means that uh, you can uh, transport on diplomatic flights whatever you want, wherever you want, without uh, any further regulation. And actually, we don't know exactly the quantity and the type of the weapons that had been had been um, transferred uh, from different um, locations around the world because this happened on diplomatic flights mm. and um, on papers they they transported heavy weaponry but in practice we don't know exactly the type of the weapons and we can only guess by uh, the imagery which is um, which has circulated uh, on uh, the jihadist propaganda films and videos. Uh, many of them uh, are well equipped and use uh, Eastern European weapons, Bulgarian machine guns and rockets. I myself 
saw and uh, filmed on the ground in Syria uh, such uh, 122 millimeter dropped rockets mm. in uh, warehouses uh, uh, used by Al Qaeda in Syria. The, uh, the, the also, other... I, I forgot oh, go to mention something important. Um, we, here we are talking about the involvement of a of a, uh, one state, Azerbaijan in the weapons uh, trafficking around the world because the minister the scheme is um, in brief i will explain the the ministry of foreign affairs of azerbaijan sent um, requests to its embassies um, in different uh, countries from where the weapons was uh, were bought the embassy the relevant embassy uh, the relevant embassy sent um, requests for diplomatic clearance to the local authorities and the local authorities uh, sent back uh, diplomatic notes for exemption for transportation of dangerous goods and granted this diplomatic status which means that they turned a blind eye to the fact that the flights were carrying weapons, heavy weapons, to very, very suspicious uh, destinations. Um, there are there are a lot of, uh, uh, to be said how and uh, why the local authorities got involved in this case. And if you wish, we can do it after the break because okay. it's a long story, but very important. We'll come. Uh, uh, yeah, we'll keep on going because we're pretty flexible on time here. Uh, but I, I did also want to. The, a thing that jumped out of your report to me was it didn't look like the U.S. companies involved were sending U.S.-made weapons. They yes, were sending yes. a, mm -hmm. a Eastern Bloc, for lack yes. of a better term. Uh, can you go into that a little bit? That that mm -hmm. kind of also indicates something might not be quite on the up and up. Um, um. The first question which occurs is why uh, the U.S. Uh, Special Operations Command uh, is supplied by private American companies uh, with uh, Eastern European weapons or non-U.S. standard weapons. It's obvious that these weapons would not be used by um, the U.S. military, obviously. They, they don't use non-U.S. standard weapons. So... These weapons would be used and would be uh, resupplied to a third party. In our case, the case of Syria, uh, the Syrian rebels, which uh, which are called moderate or, or called moderate opposition. Now, all of us know that there there are no such thing as moderate opposition. These were radical uh, Islamist groups, and I can. Um, I can prove it myself because um, I, I, had an, I interviewed the deputy commander of the so-called uh, Free Syrian Army, which is considered uh, moderate opposition in Syria. And I interviewed him not in Syria because the Free Syrian Army is not present in Syria. I interviewed him in the province of Hatay, which is located um, on the border with uh, Syria, but from the Turkish part of the border. And... Uh, he told me that 15, uh, the secret services of 15 uh, states are involved uh, in uh, the, the weapons supplies to radical groups in Syria. He was very disillusioned and fed up with the reality in Syria. I'm sure that in the beginning, many of these people, the so-called uh, moderate opposition, really took arms and wanted to fight for freedom for, for better future for them and their children, but um, very soon their insurgency was uh, hijacked and used by foreign powers to fulfill their own agenda and their own goals. And uh, these people finally um, ended up in uh, Turkey, in Jordan, uh, in, in other countries abroad but not in Syria on the battlefield. He told me that uh, the Free Syrian Army was just used as a facade and a pretext for the United States, uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, France, the United Kingdom to um, supply military aid 
to radical groups and uh, I will quote him uh, the more radical a group is the more weapons it gets which means that these Bulgarian weapons or Eastern European weapons were transported on diplomat diplomatic flights to the very same radical groups for the public this was a moderate opposition but in general <laughs> this was Al-Qaeda or Islamic State the very same terrorists which now uh, the US-led coalition um, claims to fight. We're at 20 minutes into the show. Um, this is a good way to segue. There was something that you wanted to amplify after the break. And this, there really isn't a commercial break here because we're non-commercial. It's just segment by segment. Was there something you wanted to amplify before we move to uh, the interference in Syria's internal policies, in their internal politics? Um, yes. Um, now the truth about Syria, it, it came out. But uh, the damage and the, the human loss is unimaginable. And um, all those complicit in uh, the devastation of Syria should be uh, held to account for those people who uh, don't care about Syria because it is so far away. Uh, I would say that these weapons were, were bought and supplied um, and were paid for with the tax, uh, taxpayers' money. So this, uh, this, was, um, this weaponry was uh, paid for uh, with your money, the American money, the American people's money. So you should uh, hold your government to account. For those who care about uh, the children, of Syria, I would say that uh, more than 500,000 uh, Syrians have already been killed mm. with uh, weapons on diplomatic flights coming from from us, from our countries, from Bulgaria, from Serbia, from Croatia, and, and so on. And we should speak up about it, and uh, we should uh, at least uh, press our governments to stop the weapon supplies, because now the, we are all looking forward to the end of the war in Syria, but where uh, will all these uh, jihadists go? Probably this would be either Afghanistan and Pakistan or southern Africa, and uh, the weapon supplies will continue, and uh, we should continue following them because um, the scheme will, will be no, not much different, I'm sure. The diplomatic cover assure uh, the safe uh, transfer of weapons uh, without inspections, without regulations. According to YAT regulations, civil aircraft uh, can't uh, transport on board dangerous goods. This is the case with Silkway Airlines. Its aircraft is civil aircraft, and it is not allowed to carry on board dangerous goods, in our case, heavy weapons. But it did carry on board uh, such uh, weapons because it lose it uh, used the loophole in the law I'm sure left uh, uh, especially for such cases um, this loop loophole gives Sukway uh, Airlines the right to apply for exemption uh, for transportation of dangerous goods and um, the local authorities uh, granted such exemption, and Silkway Airlines uh, carried on board uh, tons of heavy weapons under diplomatic cover with the knowledge of the local authorities of uh, many European countries, the United States, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and many others. They did it intentionally uh, under this uh, diplomatic cover and with the knowledge of the local authorities, and many governments around the world are involved in this criminal scheme, Many of them just prop, uh, uh, capitalize on the weapon supplies and profit on uh, the weapon supplies. Others just follow their geopolitical um, purposes and objectives. I'm talking about the masterminds of this uh, scheme and the, the masterminds of this scheme uh, as uh, the United States and its government, I don't want to say the American people, no, not at all, uh, the CIA in this case, and uh, Saudi Arabia. 
uh, in many uh, on papers in, and in this documentation, I noticed that the sponsoring party of many of the purchases and uh, uh, or arms deals was Saudi Arabia. No matter who ordered the weapons, those who paid for them were Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates. Well, uh, we're uh, at 25 minutes into our hour. Um, you kind of uh, you brought us into a good segue there. For as the as the war in Syria hopefully is winding down, um, there has been a shift from regime change, which has been uh, seems to have been the policy, American policy, for quite some time. When that became apparent that that wasn't working. Uh, it seems to have shifted. Uh, we'll have a link up from ex-CIA chief David Petraeus, and he's uh, talking about permanent split uh, to, to split Syria into multiple countries. Um, what do the Syrians think about that? I mean, this is a radical concept. Maybe we should ask the Syrians what should be the outcome of the Syrian war. Um, I don't, yes, I don't predict the separation or split of Syria. On the contrary, now the Syrian people are more united than ever. In the beginning, yes, there was such a risk of separation of Syria in five different states. But now, no matter... The religion of the people in Syria, they, they are all together and, uh, they, um, they, they look forward uh, to, uh, having their country back. I don't predict separation of Syria at all. On the contrary, uh, now Syria is under the huge influence of, uh, Hezbollah and Iran and Russia and they will not let this happen. So, uh, definitely the plan uh, for partition of uh, Syria failed. It can't happen anymore. I'm, I hope so. These guys seem to be very slow at taking a hint. When something isn't working, they tend to try to just do it harder. Uh, notice that we're still in Afghanistan after how many years? 16. Um, doing the same thing that we've done for 16 years that isn't working hasn't worked, won't work, and uh, I, it's it's very I, it's it's good to hear that you're saying that that Syria is going to resist that. I'm really hopeful that they have the strength to be able to continue resisting that. And you're saying that they are having to reach out to allies to try to keep them from being just overwhelmed by the military-industrial complex. Uh, if uh it wasn't Hezbollah in the beginning of this war. Now Syria would not exist. Uh, I'm serious. I, I have seen this myself uh, on the ground in Syria. The first um, to help and protect Syria or the integrity of Syria were the uh, Hezbollah and uh, its fighters. Um, I know that uh, Hezbollah is designated as a terrorist organization by the West, uh, but what I've seen on the ground uh, was uh, uh, huge support mil militarily by Hezbollah for the Syria, uh, Syrian army. And uh, in many of the battles uh, that I filmed, uh, Hezbollah was on the, on the forefront uh, of the resistance and um, um, this is not only because uh, um, Hezbollah and Iran which supports Hezbollah the Lebanese uh, movement uh, this is not only because they are regional uh, ambitions but also because um, um, as you mentioned uh, Afghanistan if uh, the war in Syria uh, didn't uh, stop. The whole region would be devastated. Iran and uh, Lebanon and all neighboring countries. And this conflict uh, would split um, all around 
Syria. So their involvement um, is uh, for that reason to avoid the, the scenario of Afghanistan. What uh, the the whole concept that the Syrians weren't capable of making their own decisions, and that is kind of the position that we're being fed back here in the states. Uh, Syria was a was a major civilization six thousand years ago. Uh, so the whole concept of let's take civilization to the Syrians is a little shaky before we get rolling. Um, what uh, what did you see in Syria? I mean, it's, it sounds like you're hopeful that they'll be able to patch themselves back up when this war is over and repair all the damage. I'm seeing pictures coming out of how fast they're repairing some of the damage and getting back to peacetime. Uh, yes, Syrians are very resilient people. Um in general, not about only about uh, Syrians. Uh, I think and I do believe that every country has the right to choose its own future, to choose who uh, to govern uh, the country and how to govern this country through elections. Uh, I haven't uh, covered the elections in Syria, the last elections, uh, uh, when uh, the Syrians overwhelmingly uh, elected uh, Bashar al-Assad for their president. But um, I can assure you that um, many of the Syrian people uh, see him as the only, um, the only option now to, to resist uh, the war, uh, to resist the Islamic um, uh, danger, which all of them face because uh, uh, the mind of the people now uh, has changed. Many of them see uh, the others as enemies. Um, many of them were involved in this war on the other side, the side of uh, the jihadists. And uh, many were brainwashed as well. So they see the regime as the only option left now. I don't support any regime. And I have never interviewed a single, a single representative of this regime. I'm against all the regimes. I want to stress that. I don't support the Syrian regime, not at all. I think that every regime is... Um, harmful and damaging for every country, but it's up to the Syrians to choose that, not to the United States or Arabia, Bulgaria or other countries who export weapons. Because these weapons, they don't kill the regime. These weapons kill civilians, and I saw it myself on the ground in Syria. One of these 122 millimeter rockets uh, fell next to me, my cameraman and me, and killed and beheaded a mother and her child before my eyes. And uh, I, I feel very emotional talking about that because um, you can realize uh, this war by seeing it, by facing it directly. And this war means uh, death of children and the weapon supplies mean, uh, mean uh, business with the death of hundreds of uh, thousands of children and that's why it matters and that's why I am ready to, to reach the end no matter what to be sure that this mother and her child and uh, such uh, tragedies will never happen again and I will never see this again I, I can't forget uh, their, their death really it's my recurring uh, nightmare and I promised myself to do something and uh, I hope that this story will touch many people no matter that Syria is so far away we should do something to press the government to to stop the weapon supplies not only in Syria I've got about four minutes left um, we're, we're seeing drone strikes uh, because it's politically easier for the United States to use a drone. Uh, have you ever come in behind where a drone is hit? Uh, the, the, the figures that are being released by reputable uh, analysts are showing extremely high civilian deaths for pretty shaky military results. 
Okay. Did you ever get a chance to see that while you were on the ground? I have seen this, uh, but not uh, in uh, Syria in particular. I've seen it in Gaza. Mm. Uh, and this is something which I don't wish anybody to see. Um, because um, Gaza is a place which is uh, vastly uh, and uh, densely populated and uh, you can't separate militants or Hamas fighters from civilians. Uh, firing rockets uh, and missiles uh, uh, by re remote control, you don't know where this uh, rocket will, uh, will end. And usually one uh, strike by uh, drone mm -hmm. means at least 20 civilians killed, at least. And when this happens, the answer is, sorry, we made a mistake. Just one uh, apology. And they think that this is enough. This will uh, bring back these 20 uh, murdered children. I am speechless. I, I don't know how uh, and what kind of people can do that. I, I just don't know. This means that the life of the people in Gaza or in Syria or in the Middle East, it doesn't matter. Uh, it is not equal to the life of the people in Europe. For example, when we have a terror attack in Europe, uh, no matter how many the victims are, I, I'm, I strongly oppose uh, any kind of violence. And even one uh, human life cost, it is a huge cost. Uh, and I don't support that, of course. But I mean, why, why is that uh, 20 killed children in Gaza? It is not the breaking news. It is not important. While a terrorist attack in Europe... It is a headline, of course, it is important, it is a terrorist attack, but we feel safe in Europe or in the United States. Uh, we don't live um, under a constant threat uh, from the sky, from the drones above us. We are safe. But what about these people there? Their life doesn't mean anything? Probably no. It doesn't mean anything. And they're just uh, statistics and targets for the drones to strike. It's it's important. I'll I'll have a link to this to keep in mind from a military point of view. Uh, the, the gentleman who uh, was the architect of Coin Counterinsurgency uh, is is an Australian by the name of uh, David Kilcullen, and uh, there there'll be a quote uh, from him talking about it's completely counterproductive to try to. To, for lack of a better term, win the hearts and minds of, of people while you're killing them and destroying their homes. Um, any thoughts on that? Mm, I really want to be able one day to interview such uh, people, taking <laughs> the decisions, really, yes, taking the decision to kill somebody uh, in that way without clear evidence uh, who the, the, the targeted uh, uh, persons are. I, I, I can't imagine how you can do it and how you sleep after that. Really, I can't imagine. Uh, it is like a, a computer game, but it is not. This is the real life, and these are real people, not from a computer game. Um, I am strongly opposed to this. I, I just... I'm speechless talking about this. You should go on the ground and see what death means and what the real face of the war is. And you can realize the war when you see it in the eyes of the children dying or starving to death and, and you can't help them. You can help one, two, three children. You can give them food. You can give them clothes. You can give them aid. But you cannot uh, bring them uh, back their limbs, their future, their parents, their houses. You, you can't give them back this. And um, really, I wish all of these people who caused the, the devastation of Syria just to go there and uh, not only say sorry, 
but see and look at the, the eyes of these children so that they know what they did. There's a, because of, it's, it's very hard for reporters to be able to actually separate themselves from the story and, and speak about the reality of the story. Uh, and, and, and what you're talking about right now, the smell, uh, the things that give you nightmares in the middle of the night, that's almost never conveyed in, an, in a newspaper story. Do you see any way that reporters could do a better job in yes. trying to get the reality of what war really is out? Yes, because, for example, now what we, what we see on the news yes. coming from Syria... We see um, how the military operations are going, how many uh, squ- uh, kilometers, square uh, kilometers uh, have been liberated, how many ISIS fighters have been killed. It depends on uh, which uh, media reports. I mean, if it, if it is a, uh, an Arab media, it will report the number of the casualties of, uh, of ISIS. Uh, if it is uh, an European media, it will report on the number of uh, uh, the civilians killed, but not not all, not uh, very often actually. Nobody cares about the number of the civilians killed. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> what matters is the human cost of this war, and uh, I wish more journalists uh, try to to place themselves in the shoes of these people there so that uh, the rest of uh, the rest of us can feel the war can smell it can understand it not only the statistic is what matters it is about uh, about the life that we that we should save and we can do it as a journalist because uh, telling the truth is the best way to to help the people. We've got about 19 minutes left in the show. And if we can, it would be great if you could kind of uh, give us your thoughts about the inside workings of journalism. Uh, again, we see you are our eyes and ears, uh, but what our eyes and ears are telling us is sometimes filtered through that news gathering process. You tried to tell the truth and lost your job. Uh, do you see any way that we can do a better job with our, our reporting uh, at telling the truth? Um, I'm uh, very disappointed with journalism, actually, to be honest. Um, very, very disillusioned. Uh, I, I have seen this myself not only in Bulgaria. Many reporters, for example, in Syria, uh, we cover the same the same story and uh, interview the same people. I can give an example. One journalist from mainstream media, I don't know if I have to say which TV channel. Okay, it's a CNN. So one CNN reporter uh, interviewed a child coming out of uh, Aleppo, fleeing uh, the horror there back in uh, November of 2016, the child said, we all heard the child. I mean, there were many journalists and uh, we interviewed the child and uh, he said, uh, we were afraid that we would die of hang, of, uh, of hang, uh, because we didn't have food. Uh, the CNN uh, reporter translated the words of the child, we were afraid that we would die of the bombs of Assad. The child didn't say that. The child said that they were starving to death and they were afraid that they would die of hunger, not of the bombs of Assad. So many, um, such many stories that can be given as an example, uh, really, uh, I think that sometimes the war, uh, which is, which has been waged on the media front is even more, uh, dangerous and, uh, scary than the real war on the battlefield. Because, uh, on the media front, you have, uh, 
really fake news. This term is is real, and uh, you have uh, uh, one uh, type of propaganda clashing with another type of propaganda, and you you must be very careful uh, when you report on such uh, war stories because uh, you can cause a lot of of damage. You yeah. can uh, destroy other people's life. You can even destroy uh, other uh, a whole country, like the case of Syria. And um, I don't know. I I am wondering how these journalists uh, are able to to sleep at night because you know that you lie, but you do it on front of the camera, in front of the camera, and you just don't care. Because you are told that you should blame the Assad regime. When a child look at you almost dying of uh, and starving to death, and you you lie in the face of that child so that you can um, send your great war report from Aleppo full of lies. And um, uh, I also want to say something which people don't know, but many of these foreign journalists... Um, which work uh, for mainstream media, they cover the war in Syria from the Assad regime side. So they enter in Syria legally on visa and they are protected by uh, the Syrian um, army, by the Syrian soldiers loyal to the regime. Uh, I'm wondering if uh, they didn't know that the rebels were not moderate, would they go to the side uh, of them or to the side of uh, the Assad's army? Probably these journalists are well aware that uh, the so-called moderate rebels are not so moderate and that they are terrorists so that they don't go uh, on the other side of the battlefield. They cover the war from the side of the regime because it is safer and because you have protection. Well, if you go on the other side, where the so-called moderate, op- uh, moderate opposition operates, you risk to be either beheaded or brutally uh, hanged and uh, raped if you're a woman. So that's the sad reality. People don't know it, but uh, the war on, uh, on Syria was a huge propaganda um, war. Uh, including uh, hundreds of journalists, uh, which were like the soldiers on the on, on the battlefield, but they were uh, on the media front. Uh, and uh, the sad reality is that nobody cares about the damage caused to Syria, to the Syrian people. Let's not talk about the regime. Let's talk about the Syrian people. Nobody cares about them. We've got, not the uh, journalists, not the politicians. We've got 11 minutes left in the show. Uh, part of the solution that, by process of elimination, uh, we're, we're beginning to look at for fake news is back to reporters that you actually have some trust. Uh, a show like this with an hour unedited where we get to hear who you are um, it will cause people who have heard this interview to look at a news report from you in a different way than some nameless, faceless propaganda spewing corporate hack. Um, as a person who has been there, I, we don't want to go into the ones who are bad reporters. I think people are seeing plenty of that. As a reporter who has been there, who do you trust? Um, who are the, who, who do you look to? Uh, whose whose words should we be listening to and waiting? Uh, okay, I, I got your question. Um, I know which media organization uh, on oh, who the journalists uh, that uh, are famous. I know I know who they work for, and I know whose propaganda they uh, profess. So I try to. Uh, Follow uh, all media organizations and all the news uh, channels uh, so that I would have um, more information on uh, the story behind. 
Um, and I would have the full picture, the full, the full pattern of uh, uh, the different parties involved in uh, the war of Syria because um, uh, you have many official uh, propaganda channels, not right. only the jihadists, but also you have um, Iranian, uh, Lebanese uh, TV channels, uh, which obviously cover the war from the side of Iran and Hezbollah. So I follow them, and to be honest, uh, their journalists, their reporters are very brave because they are really, really like fighters, and they are uh, they are on the forefront of the of the battle, and they risk their lives, and they, many of them were killed. But these journalists try to to show the real picture of the war uh, on the ground, while many of their colleagues just uh, made um, live coverage. Uh, are, there, not- are there a couple of them you could recommend uh, to people who don't have the first-hand knowledge you have? I, I think I will be accused of uh, being... Uh, That's true. Yes, so I, I'd better not do it. I have my personal conviction. I, or at least uh, this is uh, my... Uh, I have personal acquaintances, and uh, I love this journalist, but I'd rather not uh, say their, their names because uh, uh, I'm sure I will be accused of trying to promote uh, certain propaganda. This is... I would recommend people to to follow all sides of uh, this propaganda war so that they will uh, get a better understanding uh, who is fighting who and for what. This is the best uh, way. Follow everything and uh, try to um, understand the the truth behind behind the uh, uh, behind uh, the report uh, reporting. We've got eight minutes left. Uh, do you have some advice for people who are consumers of news? As to it, it's almost the same process as a good reporter. You don't just take something that comes in over the threshold and and run with it. You verify it. Um, by the same token, a listener has to do the same, especially in the environment of all the fake news. Uh, any advice to our listeners how how to choose good news? It's very hard. I'm sure if uh, I hadn't been a war reporter, I would have never known the reality on the ground in the Middle East. Right. You should go there and see yourself and uh, understand the situation. Otherwise... You can't trust um, anybody. Uh, it's hard to give an advice. Uh, maybe uh, social media is very useful uh, because you can uh, contact uh, people uh, from the other side of the planet and you can uh, have a conversation yourself with them. Uh, it's a little bit like being a reporter, but... My recommendation is first-hand experience. This is the best way. You should uh, try to to follow people who live in uh, Syria and the Middle East, no matter uh, where, so that you know their opinion, not uh, the Western journalists' opinion, the, the, the opinion of the people uh, living there or dying there. This is uh, what matters. The life of these people. I've got to say, as a reporter, I have a guilty conscience about this. Um, I am not forward where I should be covering these stories where I can actually use my eyes and my judgment. Uh, and, and the reason for that is I don't think I'd live through it. I mean, we're seeing a war on reporters. Uh, the numbers of killed reporters is horrifying. Uh, the pressure on reporters to not tell uncomfortable truths is horrifying, which is kind of what this whole story is about. Um, I, do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> I, I don't uh, justify the reporters uh, whose excuse is that they would be fired or they would be punished or uh, pressurized. This is not an excuse because uh, it's not only about you. It's not about uh, your salary, uh, your family. It's about other people's life. And when you lie on camera 
and uh, spread uh, fake news, you put at risk other people's life. Uh, and uh, I don't justify this journalists. And uh, if you feel pressurized, you just uh, give up your job and uh, find another place to work or just change your occupation because uh, there's no excuse for lying. I can't justify any sort of any any kind of lie, especially when it is about uh, such serious uh, thing like war. And there's a saying uh, that's the first victim of every war. This is the truth, and it's so so true. The first victim of the war in Syria was the truth. We've it got, died first. We, we've got four minutes left. I know this will be difficult considering what we've just been talking about, but do you have anything optimistic? How do you keep doing what you're doing? How do you keep telling the story and trying to be the eyes and ears for those of us who aren't up forward? Um, anything optimistic? <laughs> uh, uh, yes, there's optimism. Definitely there's optimism uh, for me because... Um, I don't feel alone. I uh, I have got a huge, tremendous support by so many people uh, around the world who don't support uh, the idea of uh, um, of many of their governments to send uh, military aid uh, in uh, not only in Syria uh, abroad. I'm happy there are uh, such peaceful solutions that can come out of uh, um, my report, my investigation. And uh, I am thankful to you in in particular because uh, this talk uh, covered so many important issues and uh, it was uh, for me important to... Uh, to say it to the American people, because um, here in my country, um, we have uh, a lot of American propaganda, and uh, I thought that American people uh, don't care about Syria or the Middle East or people here. This is not true. The fact that now we are talking and uh, the fact that you you gave me almost one hour to speak up means that people around the world, we are all the same. We share the same values, no matter where we live. And uh, we can fight together for one and the same the same uh, goal. And uh, this is very optimistic to know that uh, we live in a borderless world. And uh, together we are a huge power. I mean, journalists who are ind- independent and who uh, work for the people, not for their governments. And this is very optimistic. We've got uh, one minute left. Uh, Serena Shem, we touched on her in the beginning, and I think it's absolutely imperative that reporters start covering each other, that we start standing up. There, there still has been no investigation of what happened to Serena Shem. Yes, um, the reason. Yes, the reason for this blackout is first that. Uh, uh, it happened in Turkey in uh, suspicious uh, circumstances. Uh, probably this was organized by the people whom she revealed in her reports. And uh, the very same people she revealed should uh, carry on the investigation. They will not investigate themselves. And secondly, uh, Serena worked for Press TV, an Iranian uh, state-run uh, TV channel, which doesn't mean, no matter where you work, it doesn't mean that uh, we, all the journalists, should not uh, um, stand up and uh, fight for each other. Because here we're talking for her life. She has two children, as far as I know. She has a mother and her family, and she left them for the truth. And she's a heroine. She's a modern-day uh, heroine. And um, I'm proud to to finish this conversation with uh, um, my tributes to her. 
really such a beautiful and brave woman that can only uh, make uh, uh, humble us all. And uh, I am sure her star will always shine in the sky of the best journalists. I don't think we could end any better than that. It's been a delight to be able to talk to you, to somebody who's been forward and seen what you've seen and lived. Um, and then that's, we thank you for those of us who aren't forward at this time and possibly don't feel great about themselves for not being forward. Um, thank you for doing as good of a job as you're doing. Um, thank you for giving me this opportunity to share my feelings, my thoughts with the American people. I'm, uh, um, I feel so close now to you and your listeners because uh, no matter the distance between us, we are one and the same. We are human beings.